Our Sunday night theme this year is understanding the times, and we're looking at different topics, moral topics, current events, things that we may not completely understand, uh, so we're trying to understand the times. Uh, we've been on the topic of the religion of Islam for the last couple of weeks, and we'll work on it for tonight and next week, and hopefully understand some of the things that we don't understand. Uh, Obviously, the religion of Islam and the terrorists and all the things going on in the world is a bit confusing. Uh, we hear that the religion of Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, we know Muslims in our community and schools and workplaces and all that that are peace-loving, law-abiding citizens. Uh, but we also see another side that claims to be following the religion of Islam that uh, evidences all kinds of bloodshed and terrorism around the world. So how's this work? Uh, that's what we're trying to understand. Uh, and let me just start with a little explanation, perhaps, of how difficult this is or how presumptuous maybe of this is for me to try to explain Islam to you. Uh, and one way I thought of explaining that is think about Christianity. What if you were not a Christian and wanted to explain Christianity to yourself, to understand it? Uh, you could find a lot of people to point out as Christians and maybe talk to them about it. Uh, suppose you went to one person who called themselves a Christian. Uh, they seem to be a good person. They go to church on Christmas and Easter. They uh, want to be married in the church. They want to be buried in the church. Uh, they respect the clergy. They live a good moral life. Uh, but if you handed them a Bible, uh, they probably couldn't find the New Testament in it. Uh, they don't know anything about the Bible. Well, they don't know the doctrines of the Bible. They, they don't understand all of that or anything, but they are Christians. Could you judge Christianity by talking to somebody like that? Uh, or maybe you went found a monk, a monk uh, somebody that takes the religion so seriously that they have taken vows of poverty and go into seclusion and pray 12 hours a day and memorize the New Testament. This guy says he's a Christian. You look at that and you think, is that Christianity? Uh, or maybe you find a group of Pentecostals in the Appalachian Mountains that speak in tongues and handle snakes and know a few verses from Acts 1 and 1 Corinthians 12, and that's about all they know about the Bible, but... They claim to be Christians, and what we do is Christianity. Uh, maybe you talk to the guy who came to Wichita and killed Dr. Tiller a few years ago. Uh, he believed that his Christian duty, evidently, was to take someone's life. Or maybe you encounter an atheist that looks at the religion of Christianity and says, Your Bible... It says to stone people. You know, there's a verse right there that says that. Uh, it tells you not to eat shrimp, but you eat shrimp. You know, so, so what do you 
think Christianity is. Uh, when you put all that together for somebody outside to try to explain Christianity, it's a little presumptuous and difficult. And I think understanding and explaining Islam is probably harder than that. But under, I, just, I tell you that so you know that I know that. <laughs> I don't pretend to be an expert on Islam and have all the right answers and all that, but I'm trying to understand the times, and you have to go along with me, I guess, on this journey if you're coming on Sunday nights. Uh, I think in the Muslim world you'd find the same extremes. Uh, you'd find some folks who think Islam is a good way of life. Uh, they see it as a moral and spiritual guide for their life. And they do the things that they've been told to do. And they pray so many times a day and they, they, they eat a certain diet and they uh, respect that way of life and they're good folks. But then you also find somebody from the Wahhabi sect that's been raised in schools that teach them to hate Christians and Jews and I believe that jihad is a sure way to heaven. So they're killing people. Strap bombs on themselves and go blow up buses full of children. Uh, there's some extremes there. And to try to explain Islam as a whole is a unfair of me, perhaps. Uh, to try to pass judgment, if you will, on a whole religion. And so far we've been pretty well talking history. Tonight... Uh, I'm getting more into trying to explain Islam to myself, at least, and to you also. Uh, I think one thing that we've got going for us is that we've got 2,000 years of Christian history to look at. And we've also got about 1,400 years of Islamic history to look at and see what has been produced uh, by those religions. So the, the, the conclusions that I'm going to give you tonight are after quite a bit of reading, but certainly uh, not given as the definitive answer for everything, but they're, they're what I've concluded. Uh, when I said there's 1,400 years of history, uh, you see the same kind of uh, repetitive uh, discord and violence and, and, and warring and, and all of that throughout the religion of Islam. And yeah, you can point to times in Christianity, you can say the Crusades were a really bad thing. But over 2,000 years, you look at Christianity as a whole and you see a different picture. Uh, and I put one quote in here from Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who, pretty scholarly fellow that studied civilizations and came over to America and studied us and, and tried to figure out why we were so successful when we rebelled from the uh, from Britain. And he said about the Koran, he said, I studied the Koran a great deal. I came away from that study with the conviction that by and large there have been few religions in the world as deadly to men as that of Muhammad. So far as I can see, it is the principal cause of the decadence so visible today in the Muslim world. And though less absurd than the polytheism of old, its social and political tendencies are, in my opinion, more to be feared, and I therefore regard it as a form of decadence rather than a form of progress 
in relation to paganism itself. De Tocqueville said, I studied the Koran and I think there's a problem in there. I think there's a problem in the world of Islam because of what the Koran says. And it causes trouble. And he's not the only one to say that. I've got other quotes that we'll go to in a little while. There's uh, one on the back from Colson that we'll kind of summarize with. But Chuck Colson uh, said, we, we hear about the good Muslims or the vast majority of Muslims. And they're a religion of peace and tolerance. And that a small minority, radicals, extremists, have hijacked the wonderful religion of Islam. Chuck Colson says the truth is that bin Laden and his followers did not hijack Islam. They simply took it seriously. And, and that kind of summarizes what I'm going to say in not quite those terms, perhaps. Uh, but I think there is a problem with Islam. And I've listed a number of problems, if you will. Uh, but I think the 1,400 years of history and looking at what's really in Islam has convinced me that there's a problem there. I'm not saying there aren't good Muslims. I aren't saying that there aren't folks like that that are peaceful and tolerant and on and on. But there's a problem in Islam that is not in other religions. Okay. So let's work through some of these. We'll get halfway through maybe and save the rest for next time. I think the first problem is the founder. Okay. Muhammad is not divine. He, he's a human, a very human uh, man, born 600-something. We talked about that in the history. Uh, claimed to be a prophet, claimed to be the great prophet, claimed to be the final prophet. And what he said was to be taken without question. He was not to be blasphemed or mocked in any way. Uh, he made all those claims, and he started the religion, but he was just a man. Uh, and he was not a good man. Uh, and I realize that's blasphemy to the, the Muslim world, but he wasn't a good man. Their own history, the hadith, the, the history of his life, the sayings about him and what he did, and the history that we have of him, he was not a good man. He wasn't a moral man. Uh, he started out as a, a trader and made his living that way. Uh, came into some wealth when he married a wealthy widow. Uh, and about 40, he began preaching his religion. Uh, preaching that they shouldn't, the Arabs shouldn't worship in that community, shouldn't worship all these different gods, they ought to worship one true God. And he was exposed to Judaism and Christianity. He knew about that. And he put together a religion uh, that supported his uh, prophet, if you will. Uh, he raised armies. He, he began by raiding trade caravans uh, to support himself and his followers. And very violently raided these trading parties. Peaceful people trying to trade, he would raid them, uh, take their goods, and justified that in his religion. Uh, he moved on to conquering more and more territory until he had taken basically all of Arabia. Uh, 
for his religion. Uh, he exterminated whole cities, uh, killed women and children, took them as slaves when he didn't kill them, uh, ordered assassinations if somebody mocked him. Uh, when somebody made fun of him or said something bad about him, uh, he ordered that they be assassinated. Uh, he had, there's no sure agreement, but uh, I've seen all sorts of numbers, but at least probably 15 wives he had. Uh, he said in his religion that men could have four up to four wives, uh, but he had some exemptions because he was the prophet. So he had 15, and uh, the youngest when he married was six, uh, consummated the marriage when she was nine. And these things may be disputed by some, but they're in his own history. Uh, the things that people wrote about him after his death and that they're venerated as him doing these things. And the answer when you ask, well, how could he do all this and be a prophet of God? Well, the prophet is above the law. Uh, the prophet's different. You don't criticize him. Uh, you don't criticize him, you don't criticize the book, you, you don't criticize anything. Uh, but so that's where it starts. The man that started the religion was not a good moral man. Uh, even those that deny that Jesus was the Son of God say that he was a good moral teacher. Uh, a vast difference there in the founder. I think the second problem is with the book. The Koran itself. Uh, it's venerated as perfect. Uh, there's nothing wrong in it, according to Muslims. And you, and you can't question it. In fact, me holding a book like this and waving it around is probably blaspheming it. They, they treat the book very specially. They don't ever put it below their waist. They put it on the highest spot in the house. They don't ever put anything on top of it. Uh, it's the Word of God, the very Word of God. But if you try to read it, if you try to look through it or even find anything in it, uh, it's very unclear. Now, there's no, no order to it. In fact, the, the true history of it uh, shows how difficult it would be uh, to be even accurate, much less divine. Uh, Muhammad didn't write things down. In fact, in fact, some contend that he was illiterate. There's a verse in the Quran that says he was an unlettered man. Uh, most people think he could read and write, but he didn't write the Quran him down. He spoke it to people. He's, the sayings is what it was. And after he died, people started writing down what he had said. Uh, and some of them had written down some of the things he said, so they had a written record. And a lot of it came from what people remembered he said. I got to thinking about that. I think if I ask you to write down what I preached last year, what kind of collection would that be? Wouldn't take some of you very long, you know, and it certainly wouldn't all agree with itself. Well, what the Koran is is what people wrote down up to twenty years 
after he died. Okay? And he spoke for 20 years before he died, and then people wrote down for 20 years after, and those got all collected, and there were all kinds of collections. And finally, 20 years after he died, one leader said, all right, we've got to have an official one, so let's collect it, and this is it, and destroy all the rest of them. So that's what we have today. But it's venerated as being perfectly, exactly what Allah told Gabriel to tell Muhammad, and he told his followers. Well, the collection has, it's, it's difficult. There's no order to it. Uh, I couldn't even find anybody that said, here is when he said these things. There's no order to what he said when he was 40 and what he said when he was 60. And so it's all mixed up, and there's contradictory, unclear messages within one little passage. Uh, I talked last week about the, his view of the, the Jews and how some of the early things he said uh, were respectful of the people of the book he called Jews and Christians. Uh, he said the Bible was true, the book well, was a true revelation uh, from God, but men had messed it up. And he started out saying good things about Jews and Christians in particular, and then the Jews in his town of Medina rejected him and tried to uh, defeat him and all that. And from then on, he started speaking pretty harshly about them, very harshly about them. And all of that's in there, just all mixed up. So the book itself is full of unclear messages and very differing messages. Uh, I put a quote in your handout from Ibn Warak, uh, an ex-Muslim who's written a number of books, one, Why I Am Not a Muslim, another one, Leaving Islam, and another one, What the Koran Really Says. Listen to what he says. We must take seriously what the Islamists say to understand their motivation, that it is the divinely ordained duty of all Muslims to fight in the literal sense until man-made law has been replaced by God's law, the Sharia, and Islamic law has conquered the entire world. Then he says, for every text that liberal Muslims produce, the mullahs will use dozens of counterexamples that are actually exegetically, philosophically, historically far more legitimate. So what this Muslims, ex-Muslim says, is that in the Quran, the good Muslims will show you verses that say, no, this proves we're peaceful. But then he says the radicals, the, the, the others, can show you many, many more that say the exact opposite. Uh, in this book, there's much confusion. Now, in this book, the Bible, there's some confusing statements. There's very few contradictory statements. In fact, I remember I just thought of one time a fellow that worked for me that was kind of questioning Christianity and liked to ask me tricky questions, he thought. He came in one time with an advertisement he had seen in the back of a magazine. If you'd send $10 off, somebody would send you a list of, I think, 60 or 80 clear contradictions in the Bible. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, here's $10, order it. We'll look at it. And he said, really? 
I said, yeah, I'd like to see that list. So I gave him $10 and he ordered it. And when he brought it in, it was laughable. I mean, it was a quote from God and a quote from Satan. You know, and the, the list said, well, these are contradictory. Well, no duh. <laughs> yeah, they are. And that's what the whole list was. Well, it was something from the Old Testament or and something from the New Testament or something from one person and something from another person that didn't agree. Well, no, but if you read the whole thing, it makes sense. And you don't have to work real hard at it to make sense of it. I mean, I'd sat there and went through a few of them with him, and he said, huh, okay, and convinced him that it was a silly list. Well, in the Koran, there's a whole lot of that. A whole lot of differing, unclear messages. Uh, besides being difficult to understand and being able to prove peacefulness versus uh, warlike uh, commands and all that, the book is written in a 20-year span, and it's got some things that you might call suitable for the times, it very specific commands about what to do in uh, this situation, what you do with a thief and what you do uh, with an adulteress and all of that. And maybe you could argue, okay, for the primitive time he lived in, for the, the warring tribes kind of civilization they lived in, they made some sense. You know, I mean, the Old Testament got some things in it about stoning people that do this and uh, killing people that do that. Uh, but the New Testament goes a whole different direction. This book was written in a period of time where a lot of the stuff in it seems to be maybe acceptable for that time, but there aren't any universal principles in there. You go through the New Testament, and there's things like the Golden Rule. You know, there's universal principles of how to treat each other. And how to treat other people and even how to treat enemies. Love your enemies. And a lot of timeless, universal things in the Bible, there aren't any in the Quran. Now, I can't say that because I've read it. But I, I can say that because some people have studied it looking for those kind of things. And the example I put down for you is uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book one time, and, you know, he was a fairly scholarly kind of guy. Uh, he wrote a book about timeless principles called The Abolition of Man. And what he did was went through uh, all the writings that he could find, the Bible and a number of other things. I'll list some here in a minute. He was looking for those good principles, those laws of nature, he called them, natural law. And he did the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, the Confucius' writings, uh, Virgil's Aeneid. He even had writings from Australian Aborigines. I mean, he went all over the world reading things. And in them all, he found timeless principles. The law of nature. Uh, the golden rule kind of stuff. Treat other people like you'd like to be treated. In Lewis's book, there are no quotes from the Koran. Because they're not in there. There's no golden rule in here. 
It is written for a time, a warring tribe that he wanted to take over other areas and other tribes and other cities and take over the world eventually. And that's what's in there. There's a very strict delineation between believers and unbelievers. You treat believers one way, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Unbelievers, you treat them another way. There's no love your enemy, no golden rule kind of stuff in the Koran. Uh, that's part of the problem with Islam. Uh, and when I say we got 1,400 years of history, uh, it, some people say, well, Islam's always been a religion of peace and all that, but recently these radicals have hijacked it. Now, we find the same thing throughout the history of Islam. Uh, I just read a book or started reading a book about Teddy Roosevelt after he was president uh, in 1909 and he was traveling through Africa he went on a safari and then he traveled up through Europe and visited all the uh, the kings and princes and heads of state and all of that and as I read the parts about him going through Egypt and uh, other countries that were, were having problems it looked like yesterday's newspaper The problems were the same. The Muslims were warring against the the civilizations that existed, trying to take them over. And I kept reading that. I thought, this is amazing. This is not just a recent thing. Uh, John Quincy Adams, go back another hundred years, back to 1800. Uh, and if you know anything about John Adams and John Quincy Adams, they were fairly smart guys. They studied some heavy stuff. They read things in all languages, and they they investigated uh, philosophy and religion and all of that. Here's what John Quincy Adams said about Islam. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's important to, to see. Uh, this was around 1800 or so. Here's what he said about Islam. In the 7th century... A wandering Arab, Muhammad, uh, combining the powers of transcendent genius with the energy of a fanatic and the fraudulent spirit of an imposter, proclaimed himself as a messenger from heaven and spread desolation and delusion over an extensive part of the earth. Adopting from the sublime conception of the Mosaic law the doctrine of one omnipotent God, He conducted indissolubly with it the audacious falsehood that he was himself the prophet and apostle. Adopting from the new revelation of Jesus the faith and hope of immortal life and future retribution, he humbled it to the dust by adapting all the rewards and sanctions of his religion to the gratification of sexual passion. He poisoned the sources of human goodness at the fountain by degrading the condition of the female sex, the allowance of polygamy, and he declared undistinguishing and exterminating war as part of his religion against all the rest of mankind. The essence of his doctrine was violence and lust to exalt the brutal over the spiritual part of human nature. Between these two religions, thus contrasted in their character, a war of 1,200 years is already raged. 
The war is yet flagrant, while the merciless and dissolute dogmas of the false prophet shall furnish motives to human actions, there can never be peace upon earth and goodwill towards men. Now, I realize I'm just quoting a man, but that was 200 years ago, and he was looking at what had happened in the 1,200 years of Islam that he could see, and the writings of the prophet and all that. And that's a pretty harsh judgment. He's saying what I'm saying. There is a problem in Islam. The founder and the book create the problems that we see. Uh, The basic tenets that are in this book are a problem. And bear in mind, I know you can find some verses that say good things, peaceful things. But the tenets that are in there, that are in there, are producers of the problem. Uh, one is world domination. John Quincy Adams mentioned that, and uh, so so of others. Uh, I put a quote here from the Koran on the handout for you. It says, slay them wherever you find them. Drive them out of the places from which they drove you. If they attack you, put them to the sword. Thus shall the unbelievers be rewarded. But if they desist, God is forgiving and merciful. In other words, if they convert to Islam, that's okay. Fight against them until idolatry is no more and God's religion reigns supreme. But if they desist, fight none except the evildoers. So that and a ton of other passages say uh, to kill the unbelievers. You've got to keep going until the only religion left in the world is Islam. It's the one true religion. And that's your charge as Muslims, as being submitted to God. Uh, now, that quote I put down there is, uh, I took it out of another source, and then I checked it in the Quran to make sure after I'd already written it down here. And I said, here's an example of the confusing messages. Right before that passage, it says, Fight for the sake of Allah, those that fight against you, but do not attack them first. Allah does not love the aggressors. And then the very next sentence says, Kill them wherever you find them. Okay, So, So he first says something that could be taken out and shown as a a peaceful thought. And then he goes right into saying, no, kill them wherever you find them. Drive them out of wherever they drove you. And remember we talked a while back that the position, the tenet of Islam is that if Islam has ever been in an area, uh, it's theirs forever. So anybody that occupies something that was formerly Islamic is the enemy. And you can drive them out. You've got to get them out. That's your assignment as Muslims, is to dominate the world by force. Uh, Second point I put down, a tenet, is, I already mentioned it a little bit, the intolerance of infidels and a, a systemic hatred of Jews. You see the things on the TV and you wonder... 
how can they do that? You know, why does the nation of Israel uh, stir up such hate? Well, it's because this book says so. That's part of it. Here's a quote from the Quran, Surah 5, verse 57. Those that deny our revelation, we will burn in fire. No sooner will their skins be consumed than we shall give them other skins so that they may truly taste the scourge. God is mighty and wise. Believers, do not seek the friendship of the infidels and those who were given the book before you. That's Christians and Jews, people people of the book, who have made of your religion a jest and a pastime. Don't, Don't even be friends with Christians and Jews. Once again, I know you can find some verses that say nice things, but this is in there. Uh, These are the tenets that are taught in the book of Quran. It prescribes different moral standards when dealing with non-Muslims. You treat Muslims one way and you treat everybody else another way. Uh, The book, the book that we study says, always be truthful, always tell the truth. Okay? The Quran says, well, you tell the truth to believers, but when you're dealing with an infidel, you don't have to tell the truth. You can sign treaties with them. If it'll help you get ahead, you don't have to keep the treaty. If it'll help you advance the cause of Islam, lie, be deceitful. Uh, Deceit is the essence of war, he said. And war is what we're about. We are going to dominate the world. That's a tenet of Islam. Let's go ahead and finish this one real quick before we get to the followers. Another problem with the tenets of Islam is that this book, our Bible, is a spiritual guide. And it tells you how to live your life, too, in general principles. You know, work hard, take care of yourself, support your family, tell the truth, be honest, uh, obey the government, those kind of things. The principles are in there. Uh, But the Koran lumps everything together, religion and politics and the legal system, are all combined. Uh, We hear about Sharia law these days. Certain places are fighting for Sharia law. Well, it's what's happening in Egypt. Uh, The Muslim Brotherhood won the democratic election. What do they want in place as the law of Egypt? Not a democratic constitution like they had. They want Sharia law. Okay? And Sharia means a path or the way, uh, but it's Islamic law. And it's pretty complicated, but it's a a detailed system uh, that the Muslim scholars came up with from what the Quran said and all the things that Muhammad supposedly said and did. And from all of that, they've built a system of law, uh, and the fundamentalists, if you want to use that term, that's what they want to be the law wherever they are. Uh, And the Sharia law tries to cover everything, every possible human act, uh, 
divides them into what's permitted and what's prohibited. Uh, divides them other ways. I put a little lengthy definition of Sharia law here that you can read that. Uh, but it's all the devotional life, all worship, all ritual purity, marriage, inheritance, criminal offenses, commerce, and personal conduct. Regulates the governing of the Islamic State. Governs the relations to non-Muslims within the state, as well as enemies outside the state. Even in secular areas where a ruler uh, like Mubarak or somebody has said, no, we're not following Sharia law, the Muslims want to follow it. And if you read the news very carefully, you'll find that there are places in the U.S. now where there are large Muslims populations where judges are even starting to rule by what the Sharia law says. And the Muslims' populations are pushing for more and more of that. Although we live in America, we don't want to follow the Constitution or the laws of Michigan or the laws of Florida. We want to follow Sharia law. We want religious judges deciding these things. And unfortunately, we're slipping down that road where some judges are starting to include that some way. That's a hugely dangerous thing. Okay. Uh, that's the, the tenets of this book. Okay. Now, you put all that together and you take my example of somebody that's a nominal Christian that doesn't know what the Bible says or anything, is just a good moral person. None of that really comes into play probably with a lot of Muslims. But it's in there. And when, uh, you can call them radical if you want, or as Chuck Colson calls them, you can tell them that just people that take Islam seriously have that. That's what they're pushing for. That's what they want. Now, what's that created? It's created 1,400 years of disaster, of war and continual fighting and continual problems. And no peace. The problem's not some radical people that took a crazy idea of Islam. It's people that took it seriously. Okay. Uh, look at the difference. I think I made this example a week or two ago. Uh, the difference of uh, radical, extreme Christians, let's call them. The guy that shot Tiller and the people like that. Okay. When that happens, and it happens so unbelievably infrequently, I mean, that's the only one I can really think of off the top of my head. I know other Christians do crazy things, but it doesn't happen very often. And when it does, Christianity condemns it. it says, well, that guy was nuts. You know, he, he didn't follow Christianity. He interpreted it wrong. He, he went off the deep end. When you look at what's happening in the world, the volume of radical Muslims, if you want to call them that, when they do these things, we don't hear much condemnation. And if you do, like the Warwick guy said, if you do quote a verse or two about peace, the radicals have got lots and lots of verses that say this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be killing the infidels. That's a good thing. Um, and it's not all just about the, the terrorism and the jihad. The, <clears throat> the, and we don't have time to go into this, but as 
Islam grows in any country, problems begin once they get to a certain level. Okay. And I uh, see the Denmans tonight, but uh, I've, I've talked to Elaine about this because she grew up in a Muslim country, uh, among Muslims. And she said, she told me, no, they were the nicest people in the world. They were nice to us. We, we never had anything stolen while we lived there. The people that managed the apartment accommodated us in every way. They were wonderful folks. Okay? And that happens for a while. But as more and more percentage of Muslims end up in a country, there start to be problems. France has huge problems right now. Because they have a huge Muslim population that lives as a Muslim population among themselves. And they want to have Sharia law among themselves. They don't want to deal with the infidels and the non-believers. And problems come. And and I'm not probably saying this too much. I'm not trying to condemn all Muslims. I'm just saying there's inherently problems in the religion that cause what we see. A community of Christians moves into some place. You you don't see problems like that coming up because there's a difference in the founder and in the book and in the tenets of the book. Okay. Um, We'll save the the rest of that for next time and then talk about, okay, what do Christians do about all this? What do we think about this now that we've studied it for three weeks? So we'll tackle the rest of that uh, next week and look at the the followers of Islam and how they uh, are part of the problem also. So... Lesson is yours. Hope that uh, I got across the the concept that there's there's a problem there. Is my conclusion after all the studying I've been doing. Uh, yeah, there's some good things in there, but there's a whole lot of things that cause problems. Uh, we're going to sing an invitation song, and if you need to respond to that tonight, we're going to invite you to come to the front. If you got any other concerns for this family, come at this time. Let's stand and sing.